question for you. Yeah? Are there cranky women and snooty men, or is snooty the female cranky snooty's and the cranky is the male snooty? Snooty is like this... Is, oh, well, I don't know that there is a woman equivalent to cranky, because I think snooty is the is the female snooty. There's like smug. counterparts, I think. It's not so much like one is the other. Yeah. It's oh, like, like cranky to peppy, snooty to smug. Well, the Snooty and Smug are the same thing to me. Yeah. But. What is Peppy supposed to be a counterpoint to if not Cranky? I think that Cranky is male only and Sisterly is female only. I don't think that they have yeah. like opposite gender. Are there Peppy men though? No, because no, there there are four like, pers- four personality types for each gender. And they're all, and they're all gendered. How does it life, Chris? Yeah, <laughs> there are no female jocks. I don't know what That's right. <laughs> no Peppy men. No I would love that. No normal men, ladies. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Shock woman or a petty man. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Why Do We Watch This, the podcast where three friends watch a bad movie, talk about what they liked, what they didn't like, and then how they would fix it all while enjoying a theme cocktail. I'm Brendan Chapstick Trishler. I am Lee, 37 will die, Delahanty. And I'm Chris, let the realtor watch, Ravel. And as you can surely guess by those nicknames, we watched the 2002 movie sensation The Mothman Prophecies. That's right, the movie that all your friends were talking about on the playground that summer. (laughs) Mothman Prophecies, as I said, came out in 2002, directed by Mark Pellington, starring Richard Gere, Laura Linney, and... Eh, uh, Deborah Messing. You I know. mean, kind of. She's, kind of she's gone very quick. Uh, yeah, Steve from Sex and the City. Yep. Everyone else is just kind of like there. You might recognize them, but you don't know them. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of central casting in this movie. Yes, there is. And how can you enjoy central casting unless you're good and drunk? Which I am. Which Chris is, and mm-hmm. I am kind of too, frankly. <laughs> Guys, it's a weeknight. We're recording this on a weeknight. Nothing matters anymore. It's I'm not, quarantine. I'm the not, part- not drunk, but I didn't... Yeah, we'll get to it, but I did did not enjoy much of the actual time. Quarantine has obliterated uh, everything that time means. Yeah, nothing matters. You can stay up as late as you want, give up whenever you want, do whatever you want for work. It doesn't matter anymore. Mm. No one knows, no one cares. Let's do it. The drink we made was called a number 37. It was three ounces of bourbon, one and a half ounces of cherry healing, one ounce of sweet vermouth, some grapefruit bitters, and Luxardo cherries. What you do is you mix the bourbon, the cherry healing, and the sweet vermouth in a shaker with ice, strain it into a glass, and dash it with grapefruit bitters, Add two Luxardo cherries for garnish. The idea behind this was that it was going to look kind of like the murky sort of blot. What do they call it? Inkblot. Inkblot, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the psychiatrist. Yeah, Rorschach. Thank you. That they kept using in the promotional material for this movie for some reason where it kind of looks like a moth. So I want it to be kind of like dark. And you would see the two cherries as like the red eyes that they keep talking about. Didn't really work because the drink was very opaque. Yeah. You couldn't actually <laughs> see anything through it. When I looked into it, when I was <laughs> contemplating whether or not I should drink it. Did you see the Mothman? Yes. Okay. But it also Rushing looked... You. Do you have um, a tumor? <laughs> yeah. It also looked unpleasantly to me like an oil spill on the surface. And I, I, I put me off drinking it even further. So it is a very dark color uh, mm-hmm. as is. Um, it's a lovely jewel tone red is what comes out of it, honestly. Uh, it's heavy and sweet. It is. Mm-hmm. We kind of played around with it a little bit after the fact. I added some uh, grapefruit polar seltzer and I found... 
the consistency and the flavor was improved. But I'm actually very proud of us for like taking a flying leap on a cherry hearing drink, which can be a tough sell because cherry hearing is very syrupy and sweet. Yeah, I'm glad I tried to make a drink. I do think if I were doing it again, I would have thrown something in like seltzer or soda water to make it a little lighter at the end of the day. Uh, so like drinker beware, it is all booze. Yeah, it was before. all booze. So <laughs> I had had before this like a Nutrigrain bar and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And by the time I got to this drink, I could feel it, dear listener. Hashtag quarantine diet. And you're also not someone that yeah. really feels it a no, lot of the time. Really, I don't. You are quite a tank in that regard. Yeah, it's really just that like I didn't need anything. That's what happens. I didn't expect to enjoy this, to be honest with you. And um, you didn't. I didn't. <laughs> the thing is, is like, I didn't expect... Your expectations were not subverted. <laughs> I didn't expect to not enjoy it because like we made it off the dome. It's because um, I don't really enjoy sweet alcohol. Like mm. I have a huge sweet tooth for things like ice cream and cookies and shit. Um, cake, not so much. But like... I don't know, like, s- liquid, like, sweetened liquid. Like, I, I cannot do a full-fat soda. Well, if you also think about the kind of cocktails you, Lee Delahanty, seek out. Oh, it's no, they're very bitter and, like, um... Bitter or floral, but yeah, never yeah. sweet. No, never, like, too sweet. Like, so I, I didn't really anticipate that I was going to enjoy it that much. And I didn't really... I had a tiny sip, and I just thought, like... Yeah. Also, I'm not really big on cherry. I mean, there, there's a little part of me that also wonders if maybe if I didn't use vermouth, and maybe if I just used, like, bourbon mm. and a little bit of cherry, it might have played a little bit better. Uh, I'm finishing up a gin and tonic just so that I can be on a, on a the similar same bar. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I also haven't really... Because I, I haven't eaten dinner. Yeah. I sort of skipped... I had a big lunch, I skipped dinner, so, you know, it's gonna hit me. Ooh, I did not skip dinner. That yeah. was so good. I love Lily's. <laughs> Plug for Lily's. This is what we do now. It's quarantine. We don't know what else to talk about. It's, All we can say is what we ordered. Should we talk about the movie now? Yeah, yeah what, let's what, talk about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Could you All read right. us a synopsis of the Mothman yeah, prophecies? <laughs> All right, guys. Buckle up. Straight from Wikipedia. Click, click. Washington Post columnist John Kine and his <laughs> wife Mary are involved in an accident where Mary swerves to avoid a black flying figure. <laughs> John survives the crash unscathed, but Mary is hospitalized. After Mary dies of an unrelated brain tumor, John discovers... Oh my God, I put that Already there's some assumptions yeah. in this. John discovers mysterious drawings of the creature that she had created whilst in the hospital. <coughs> two years later, John becomes lost in West Virginia. That was, and oh my God! That is two years? I didn't, I didn't put that together. Where? Was there a Chiron There must have been a Chiron that we missed. I was like, we saw it twice! Or else Steve from Sex and the City was like, hey, it's been two years. Oh, I bet. Because they're... I was looking for that. And when I say that there was not a single passage of time title card... If it's been two years, that changes a lot of how I feel about his relationship. I'm sorry, Lee, continue. Yeah, I got three many more paragraphs left. Yeah, go for it, sorry. Two years later, John becomes lost in West Virginia and inexplicably finds himself in Point Pleasant, hundreds of miles off his route. Driving in the middle of the night, his car breaks down and he walks to a nearby house to get help. There's a semicolon there, but that's not how a semicolon (laughs) works. Um, the owner, Gordon Smallwood, reacts violently to John's appearance and holds him at gunpoint. Local officer Connie Mills diffuses the situation while Gordon explains that this is the third consecutive night John is knocked on his door at 2.30 a.m., asking to use a phone, much to John's confusion. John stays at a local motel and considers how he ended up so far from his original destination. Officer Mills mentions to John that many strange things have been occurring in the past few weeks and that people resort report seeing a large winged creature like a giant moth with red eyes. She also tells John about a strange dream she had in which the words wake up number 37 were spoken to her. During a conversation one day, Gordon reveals to John that he has heard voices coming from his sink telling him that... I don't remember that. I remember sinks. It was a bizarre thing to say. And also, um, they... 
uh, in one of those very confusing dreamlike transitions. Oh yeah, there's a close up oh, on a drain. There's a close up on a drain that yeah. pulls out yeah. very slowly, and then it cuts to a different. I remember scene. that, but I didn't really connect the dots. <laughs> I just there. thought it was more weirdness for weirdness. Yeah, and it's a voice coming from a sink telling him that in Denver, ninety nine will die. While discussing the day's events at a local diner, John notices that the news is showing that it's the story of an airplane crash in Denver that killed ninety nine passengers aboard. The next night, Gordon frantically explained that the voices in his head emanate from a being called Indrid Cold. Later that night, Gordon calls John and says that he is standing next to someone named Indrid Cold. While John keeps Cold on the line, Officer Mills checks on Gordon. Cold answers John's questions, including ones he could not possibly know the answers to, convincing John that Cold is a supernatural being. This episode starts a string of supernatural calls to John's motel room. One tells him that there will be a great tragedy on the Ohio River. Later, John receives a call from Gordon and rushes to his home to check on him. I thought it was the same call. No. He no. Oh, no, it's a different call. He finds Gordon outside dead from exposure. What they don't say in this is that he was, when Officer Mills checks on him right. the first time... Gordon's like, what? Gordon, I was asleep. Gordon does not yeah. remember calling. He yeah. claims not to have called John. Right. Uh, John becomes obsessed with the being dubbed the Mothman. He meets an expert on the subject, Alexander Leake, who explains its nature and discourages John from becoming further involved. However, when John learns that the governor plans to tour a chemical plant located on the Ohio River the following day, he becomes convinced that tragedy will occur there. Officer Mills and the governor ignore his warnings, and nothing happens during the tour. (laughs) (laughs) The most exciting of all sentences to ever read. Nothing happens. Soon afterwards, John receives a mysterious message that instructs him to await a call from his deceased wife, Mary, back in Georgetown, and he returns home. On Christmas Eve... Officer Mills calls and convinces him to ignore the phone call from, quote-unquote, Mary, return to Point Pleasant, and join her. Though anguished, John agrees. <laughs> As John reaches the Silver Bridge, a malfunctioning traffic light causes traffic congestion. As John walks onto the bridge to investigate, the bolts and supports of the bridge strain. The bridge comes apart, and John realizes that the prophesied tragedy in the Ohio River was about the bridge. As the bridge collapses, Officer Mills' car falls into the water. John jumps in after her and pulls her from the river and up to safety. As the two sit on the back of an ambulance, they see that 36 people have been killed, making Connie the number 37 from her dream. The cause of the bridge collapse was never fully determined. Although the Mothman has been sighted in other parts of the world, it was never seen again in Point Pleasant. Pretty spooky stuff! Spooky (coughs) shit. Too spooky for me. Yeah. All right, so that was the Mothman Prophecies. Let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> it's a very this, good place to start. A very good place to start. When you read, you begin with A, B, C. And when you read, you sometimes read the Mothman Prophecies, the book upon which this movie is based. Guys, I skimmed the Mothman Prophecies because I didn't feel like reading you the You read thing. the whole thing uh, before. I read it before, before. years ago, yeah. yes. So I vaguely remember it, but I wanted to try and read it again. You refresh your impression. Yes, exactly. Uh, so here's the fun thing about The Mothman Prophecies, the book. The book, The Mothman Prophecies, is an ostensible, true, first-hand account by an author named John Keel, who is like a Fortean paranormal writer mm-hmm. who writes a lot of this shit. And this basically takes place over one year in West Virginia, the year of 1967, leading up to the bridge collapsing at the end. The book itself is not so much a narrative progressing from point A to B to C. It's more just like he shows up and recounts the weird things that happen. So it'll be like, Mrs. So-and-so says that she saw some strange lights in the woods whenever she was washing the dishes that night. Her dog went out to investigate, and it barked at something, and then it didn't come back. And so it's just like, it's a lot of that shit, right? You might think from watching this movie that the book itself is just to do with this sort of strange, paranormal, cryptid, the Mothman. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, no, dear listener. The book has more to do with the concept of UFOs and what we would consider to be aliens. How does that tie into what the Mothman is? I'm glad you pursed your lips, Christopher. (laughs) 
It ties in thusly. John Keel's hypothesis oh, is that geez. these are called. I want to hang on. I want to get this right because I wrote down what it was that he actually said they were called. What a dumb flying leap to take. Ultra terrestrials is his concept behind. Ultra. This. Now, what his idea is is that. These concepts such as strange, inexplicable cryptids, or demons, or fairies, or aliens are all kind of the same thing. Basically what they are is they're- Do you know this? No, but I I did the same thing. Okay. Oh, interesting. Well, there it is. (laughs) So basically- I did this, and that was my grad grad, um, project for- Oh yeah, I remember that. You should- It was a very similar concept to this. But it was right. I wasn't being serious about it. (laughs) I didn't think it was real. That's where you differ. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Basically, his idea was that these things are all kind of connected to each other, and that this was just, throughout history, people's ways of explaining things that they could not understand. So, like, what someone in the 1300s might have called, like, a demon might be what you would call an extraterrestrial, because you live in the 1960s. And so when you see something weird, you're not like oh, it's the devil. You're like, oh, it must be something from space. But it's been the same thing the whole time. Right. And his idea is that these are not necessarily beings from a different planet. They are basically beings from a dimension that is sort of parallel to ours that sometimes cross over. Sometimes we can see them. Sometimes we can understand them. Sometimes we interact with them. But they're basically existing. <laughs> I love that no In a world parallel to ours. I know so, how to think like crazy guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I ain't crazy, but I know they, you know I know what they think like. Honestly, that's a good writer skill. Yeah. Wait, so like then the movie's almost being very kind. They spell it out in the movie that the John Keel insert uh leak. Like he was this like greatly respected like physicist, I think. Yes, I think that's what they say he is. So the real the John Keel Alexander Leake is the character in the movie, mm-hmm. played by Alan Bates, uh, who is effectively... It's weird. He kind of gets two insert characters in this movie. Because he has Richard Gere, who's the one who's there, which, again, in the book, he's physically there for almost all this. And yeah. then you have Alexander Leake, who's, like, this respected paranormal investigator who, like, once was... He, he used to be a professor, and then he started getting, like, visions of these strange things. And, it like, the book, as I said, a lot of the book has to do more with what you would associate with UFOs than it does with some sort of cryptid called the Mothman. And it also now, sounds like the form is more of, like, an oral history from like various people it, kind of throwing yeah their it kind of is so there are recurring characters there is a character who is not unlike gordon in the movie mm-hmm. in the book who talks to this being named indrid cold in the book indrid cold is described as more like what you would think of a man in black the you know the basic the paranormal concept yeah. of a man in black i don't know if john keel was the first person to actually put forth this idea but he seems to have been someone who popularized this as a concept the men in black as like a paranormal thing and when you see men in black because there was some confusion the first right. time you did so use that, that term to us. Right. So here's the thing. Most people associate Man in Black in conjunction with UFO investigation as like a secret government agent. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I was going to say, yes, the movie. But I meant just like a secret government agent who you don't have, like, you know, you don't know like where they're from, what organization they're from. They just show up and start asking you questions like, and don't tell anyone about the right. thing you saw, right? And then walk away. And so you're left thinking that they're from some like shadowy organization mm-hmm. operating within our country, blah, 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 whatever. So his take on Men in Black were they were themselves extraterrestrial beings in some way that who were like disguising themselves as humans because so okay right <laughs> huge grains of salt here this is all ostensibly true right quote unquote right. true he is espousing that this is true I'm not going to say that this is true. But what he was saying is that oftentimes these men would show up. They would usually be wearing like very clean clothes, look like they hadn't been worn before, and very new cars, look like they hadn't been driven before. And they would always look vaguely, and this is the word that it uses a lot, ethnic. And that they wouldn't look 
black or like East Asian. They would just look like something not white. But like his idea was that these people would show up at your house. They would sometimes ask you very bizarre questions about like what you saw. And then like if you were to offer them water or something, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Or if like you gave them food, like they wouldn't understand what people were doing with food. So is it like a basic like human social cue hospitality thing? What do you mean? I just mean like it? I would naturally offer a visitor water. Yeah, like if you, if like if they looked like they were thirsty or something, you might say like, "Oh, do you want some water?" and they'd be confused by the concept of like giving them water because they didn't know that like that was something that humans needed or something like that. So that's his whole concept of what men in blacks are. Indrid Cold is sort of like a men in black in this, in that he comes to Earth, talks to this Gordon type character, and says like, "Here's my deal. My name's Indrid Cold. I've got a wife. I've got two kids in space. We live in this other dimension. I'm 170 years old or whatever." And like. This is what I do. And so, like, that's who Indrid Cole is in the story. He's a very sort of... Uh, he's not a very, like, creepy character in the story. He's just, like, this strange guy who shows up and is like, I'm from space, let me tell you about my life. That's about it. You get that in the movie because there's a character named Indrid Cold. However... That character has almost nothing to do with the character of Indrid Cold in here. Who... I mean, the one we get in the movie is ultra creepy, and we yeah. also know next to nothing about right. him. He's malevolent just because we don't know anything about him, for yeah. the most part. Yeah. What this all culminates in in the book is the bridge collapsing, as we all know. And in the book, there's this whole thing where, as in the movie... They are sending him various messages about warnings, you know, like warnings of things that will happen. And at the end of the book, he has been led to believe that there will be a massive power outage on the eastern seaboard near Christmas. And for whatever reason, that doesn't occur. But on the day that that was supposed to occur, that's when the bridge collapses in West Virginia. In the book, he is not physically present for this bridge collapsing. It's, it's very weird because in the book, he says something like, they didn't want me to find out what was actually going to happen. So they lied and told me something else, which is just like, you're making a lot of strange assumptions here in the first place. That like, who is they? They're trying to mislead you. Why do they care? Like, he comes off as a very, I don't know if pompous is the right word, but a very self-aggrandizing type character that he's speaking truth to power and that he understands things that are happening and like the government is constantly trying to repress what he's saying to you so to be fair he comes off as like a fucking lunatic in the book i would say i also feel like when someone presents themselves as like a Ooh, the higher-ups don't want you to hear what I'm about to say. I immediately think they're full of shit. Because yeah. then they're not invested in that because they want to pass information around. They're invested in that narrative because it makes them feel powerful. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I think it's safe to say for reading this book, it's not a very... Nothing about this feels authentic to you. Like, if you were to read this book... <laughs> It might be an interesting book to read because some of the events are kind of interesting that happens in the book. You get a little, you know, a bunch of little creepy anecdotes. You're kind of like, ooh, that's fun and strange. Like, if this really happened. Then you also have to deal with his voice as an author in almost every single page coming off as this sort of smarter than everyone else in the room. Smarmy, it yeah, sounds like. Yeah, it's not a very likable voice. Aside from that, I actually think the individual incidents, at least the, as they're covered in the movie... I could see someone looking at this book and seeing material. I mean, I personally, if I was in control of it, would have just made it a miniseries or a TV show or something. I think a movie is a weird format for this story. It's possible. I just think it's more difficult. Well, we've got a way. lot of we have a lot of shows like that right now, don't we? Yeah, we have like, it's true. Um, it's increasingly popular on like Netflix and Hulu and what's stuff. What's the one? Have... But I mean, like, Room yeah, One Hundred Four is like just that. that, just from uh, elsewhere or something. Yeah, <laughs> is that what it's called? I don't know. <laughs> it's like sort of like Stranger Things, but it's anthology. Yeah, uh, or there's like Tales from the Edge or something. I know what you. I, Dispatches from the Edge, I think. No, I don't know. One of them is on Amazon Prime. Tales from the Loop is one. Yeah. And then there's. I want to check that out, by the way. One. But I just looked this up out of curiosity yeah. because one of the things I noticed in the kind of the end title card 
where it tells you at the end of the movie, like, they never figured out what the Oh, yeah, they totally was. did. They completely did! Yeah, they totally knew what caused the bridge to collapse. It was a very it's mundane failure. reason. Yeah, it was just that it was never meant to carry, like, the loads. That much weight. Yeah. Right. Wait, in, are you saying, like... The bridge so was, the bridge was, built, the bridge was yeah. built in the oh, 20s. Oh, there was a real-life... Right. There were, and there was a real-life bridge collapse, because it, the bridge was built in the 20s... And then it lasted 40 years, right. and then rush hour in the 60s was way too heavy yeah. for the bridge. Never designed to hold. It's like, it's not really trying to be a fictional. Like, yeah, it's a weird to say that, like, oh, they never found out. Well, I mean, like, the thing that I find weird about this is that the movie says something in the beginning, I think, about it being based on ostensibly true events. And it has that little title card at the end that you just talked about, Chris, where it says, like, they never found out what caused the bridge to collapse. When, as you said, they did. And also, as you said, this movie is ostensibly telling a true story. It's a true story that happened in 1967, but the movie Updated. takes place in modern day, which I just find to be a very strange thing to do. Like, I get why in terms of making it relevant or making it easier to film you might want to do, but if you're really clinging to this, like, this all really happened, why are you changing well, so much from the get-go? So I don't know that anyone went into this movie thinking they were telling a truce. No, I don't know. I, I, I'm not saying that, like, people were duped by this. I'm just saying it's weird for them to, like, be flying this flag. The nuts thing about it to me is why are you going to tell someone living in 2002 where the internet is available and we can look this shit up you're going to tell me like we never found out what the bridge collapse must have been Mothman you know it's just like be more creative than that they were, they were trying to say it was the Mothman. Yeah, I think it was just like supposed to be like a mysterious thing. Like, the there's thing, no logical reason for the bridge to collapse. I mean, it that doesn't even matter. It really doesn't matter if the bridge, <laughs> we know why it collapsed or not. The whole, the, the mystery isn't like why the bridge right. collapsed. The mystery is like, what are these prophecies of like, doom? Yeah, and true. Like, like, but, what is this thing that people are seeing? Yeah. But if we weren't supposed to care about that, why does the movie bother with a title card telling no, us? I, I'm just I saying, it's dumb. stupid. We agree with that, but like, yeah. the, I don't understand why they felt like that they needed that title card because it's not like it, it adds to <laughs> Right, it doesn't matter. Matter. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter yeah. if we do or don't know why it collapsed. Yeah, so well, that's what the mystery collapsed. was trying to solve. The mystery was who the fuck is this right. mock? Right. <laughs> I think I saw this movie around the time when it came out. Because, fun fact, they shot at a hospital where my dad used to work at. He, he called before we watched this. I like mentioned him, like, oh, yeah, we're watching Mothman Prophecies. And he's like, oh, yeah, like that's where we're at St. Francis, right? And I was like, yep, that's the one. Did your dad immediately just go, traps? Yes. <laughs> I asked him what I was holding in my hand. <laughs> my dad also called during this movie. My dad didn't and call. And we... <laughs> I fuck? told him, like, I have to get back to this movie I'm watching. It was a movie. The Mothman Prophecies. Like, that movie sucks. I <laughs> feel like everyone's dad has just watched the Mothman Prophecies. That's the conspiracy. My yeah. dad did. I mean, we watched it as a family. My so. dad hates everything, though, so, you know. <laughs> well, in this case, though, perhaps spot on. Is he a movie grump? No, he just hates everything. He just If it doesn't have, like, violence or whatever, it's not, like, mm. interesting. <laughs> um, he'd also been to Point Pleasant, actually, which is where this all takes place. Yeah. Which, I've also been to Point Pleasant, yeah. by the way. It's also like it's kind of a meh. It's just like well, I mean, small town West Virginia. Yeah. If this if this ostensible real event did not happen there, there'd be no reason for you to care about Point no, Pleasant. Truly not. It wouldn't matter. So I was talking about how I had seen the movie before I read the book, and I remember like I got this copy of the book at a library book sale years later. I just happened to pick it up. It was cheap. I was like, what the fuck? I'll read this. See what it's about because I did not care for the movie when I first saw it, and I was like, maybe maybe it makes more sense of the book. And I was sort of mind boggled to see like how weirdly different the book is from the movie and how the movie is just kind of like a sliver of what this book is saying happened. But in the same way, it does feel like this movie is maybe a product of trying to take the book and create oh, a linear narrative. 100%, because there is, as I said, no linear narrative in the book. So if you were to try and create a linear narrative from the book, I get what they're drawing from. It's, I, I, I think this movie gets caught between two impulses. And one is to, like, honor the wild weirdness of the book and really take you there. And it tries. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of this uh, feels like... Yeah, the student film was 
the term both of you, I think, used of just how, like, weird for weird's sake, a lot of the camera movements are and the transitions. Yeah, there's and I, slow-mo and fast And starts. I agree with that, but I think that instinct to maximize the weird is at odds with the movie's desire to form this into a linear narrative, which it, it, it just isn't. We're led to believe the bridge collapse is the climax, but it has very little to do with everything else that happens well, in the, the movie. Well, the thing that I, upon rewatching it, that I found really weird is that, so he knows something's going to happen because he hears a voice on the tape saying, like, great tragedy on the River Ohio. He, for whatever reason, assumes it's going to be this chemical plant where the governor is touring. We find out, no, it was the bridge. The bridge class was the tragedy. It's kind of like, yeah, okay. I guess it was. Like, so what? Like, why? Is this a twist? Am I meant to, like, feel like the rug has been pulled out from underneath me? I do think that because I think that the whole point of the chemical plant fake out mm-hmm. is, for better or for worse, that there's the second act close of, like, lowest point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where it's, like, all of these clues you've been chasing lead to nothing you are just like creating a mystery out of nothing because you miss your wife yeah I think that's what it was trying to do is saying like it's done poorly because it's kind of insane that Connie doesn't believe more I mean it depends on the direction of the wind right because sometimes Connie is all on board well I think so what it is and rewatching it I think what the deal is that Connie is kind of open to this as an idea and the most she really gets into is when she recounts a weird dream that she had and to be fair she's not saying like I think this dream is a psychic vision showing you the future. <laughs> she just says, like, this was a really weird dream I had. Super realistic. I don't know what it means. At this point, when the chemical plant thing ha- doesn't happen, rather, mm-hmm. like, 15 people unrelated who have, like, spotted have had the same vision of this Mothman. So, like, it's weird. We all have the same dream of this Mothman dude. But I think it is supposed to be a moment of, like, there's nothing really going on here. You're just making... It's, you're just doing that thing humans do of seeing Trying patterns to see that pattern. aren't yeah. any. Yeah, yeah. And so go home, go back to your life, and stop, like, chasing... Waterfalls. Yeah. Yeah. Chase waterfalls. (laughs) Yeah, it should have been the end credits song. Yeah. But after that moment of like, oh, it was nothing. uh, He goes back because Connie invites him back to West Town, West Virginia to just hang out for Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, no, you were right the whole time. There was a a thing of a prophecy of doom. Yeah. I think that has the potential to work really well, by the way. I think as like a mystery and conclusion, I think it works well. If like we're chasing this mystery of like, you know, this thing is being spotted. It's warning us of something bad is going to happen. And then finding out seemingly that like, ooh, actually nothing. Yeah. People are just crazy. There, I mean, there are definitely elements that I like. Like, I like the idea that it's, the the lesson is kind of, you can't make sense of things sometimes. And if you're trying to make sense of it, it's a fool's errand. And I also kind of like, and this is something that the character Alexander Leake, who's like one of the insert characters says, there are beings who can see more than us. And he says something, he uses an analogy where he's like, you're more advanced than a cockroach if you're trying to explain yourself to a cockroach. Which I kind of think is an interesting idea. Perhaps they are trying to say something to you, but they're not able to communicate it in the way that would make sense to us. So they're relying on vague warnings, and like those vague warnings are then misinterpreted because they're just not able to tell us what's actually going on. It is compelling. problem. Oh, I, I understand. The Flatland yes, problem? Never mind. Flatland is a book that a mathematician yeah, wrote about yeah. um, 2D kingdom. And one day a cube shows up yeah. and the triangle is like, what the fuck is yeah. this? <laughs> yeah. And he can't understand because he can only see a square. Like, okay. Right. Yes, the yeah. triangle can only see a square. He doesn't understand. Like the dimension beyond it. So there's a cube. that shares a theme with one of my favorite slash kind of least favorite sci-fi novels of all time. <laughs> Well, and I'll, I'll explain why. Yeah, no, go ahead. I'm going to try to make this as brief as humanly no, possible. But uh, Solaris, which to, to me has never gotten a good movie adaptation, and it's, I think, probably impossible to adapt. Solaris? Yes. The Russian one? 
Yes. You didn't like it? It's okay. <laughs> it misses things in the book that are truly bananas, I but I think are very hard to put on screen. Okay. The point of the book is, at, essentially its message is, yes, there is very likely intelligent life, alien life out there, but were we to ever meet it, we would have no way of making ourselves understood or having or understanding it because our points of reference are literally and on, on every level separate and completely different from theirs. So their style of communication would have a series of meanings to us that would be, we could likely assume, entirely divorced from the meanings that it intended. Right, so I mean, like we talked about before, the arrival scenario, sort exactly. of, you're trying to make sense. Yeah, you have no frame of reference. Anyhow, sorry. Which I find to be a really interesting concept. I think that concept could have flown in this movie, but it's buried under so much narrative noise that it's hard to get at it. And I feel like Leek's whole thing, the stuff he says is amongst the most compelling lines we get in the movie. I found myself wishing he showed up a lot earlier. he mattered more? Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think I'm on board with like meeting a supernatural expert earlier they don't like they, no one thinks to consult one until which is weird game. midway yeah. through act two you think that's your first move on google is <laughs> yeah like supernatural experts yeah. like, what yeah. they got, like we, we've exhausted all other avenues at this point but... i've now been on seven calls with injured cold in this creepy motel i yeah. wish i could talk to someone else about it i mean they talked to like a fucking local a dj, DJ like analyzing yeah. it <laughs> yeah oh my god it's like this definitely isn't human i mean it definitely is yeah definitely we said something that like something like, you pointed out lee when we were watching it this time as this guy is like intently listening and he's just like don't know what to make of it you were like has he never heard of like yeah, vocal uh, distortion uh, yeah. <laughs> modulator. I mean he says he's like oh says like there's no way a human voice could sound like this it's like yeah, it could yeah. <laughs> let's not dick around here in 2002 we had the tools from a human vocal cords yeah yeah I mean it's sort of I feel like you just like take your team like okay is there another DJ in this town I mean, that I like, speak to yeah it didn't come out of his mouth like that but like there's things that exist that we know about right that could have made it sound like that it's also like again I know that we are we're speaking 18 years later but it was 2002. We had vocal modulators. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's any number of things you could do to make your voice sound Yeah, Hatsune Miku didn't exist yet, but we could simulate We had vocoders, yeah. right? Like, you could just speak into a vocoder. Yeah. So truly. Yeah. Wasn't uh, it also like a toy that would sell in Toys R Us where I'm you could sure. like speak it into a thing and it would like spit it out in a Probably different one, voice at you? Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's from what Ingrid Cold uses. I don't know. Using yeah, <laughs> Polly Culkin's Chalkboy from Home yeah. Alone 2 Lost in the uh, There's parts of this movie I don't want an answer on because I think the mystery is more intriguing than the answer could ever be. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is it sets up so much mystery and then just kind of plateaus it for most of the middle section. And then we still don't get an answer, but it ends. I mean, I got this movie figured out. Do you? No, I, I mean, I do. I'm just saying, like, I know how to fix it. I do, too. I'm fully confident. I mean, what I think Soft is, is just that, like, there needs to be a resolution in the end. And that resolution need not be, we've understood everything that the Mothman was saying, why he was saying exactly. what he is. But you need to arrive at some sort of catharsis. And we don't really get any kind of catharsis. The movie absolutely believes it has, though. I know the catharsis. What's well, the catharsis has to be him moving past his wife. Yeah. But like, I think I, I think so too. But I just sort of like how do you you're tying that into the Mothman because she saw the Mothman before she had a car accident that caused doctors to realize she had glioblastoma and then die. This movie has uh, an instinct to do an or is it or are they or you know like a question everything. Is it supernatural? The or line, just, yeah. exactly. The line is very blurry at yeah. all times, and I don't hate that, especially in a supernatural mystery. You kind of need that. However, literally up until the end of the movie, the line is always blurry. And if you're going to give me no answers, you need to give me something else. And we don't get that something else. When I was like writing down things to discuss, one thing I just wanted to like, 
what is Mothman in this movie? What, we find out what Mothman is. Mothman is... I have, sort I have of, my own thoughts. What's that? I have my own yeah, thoughts. Yeah, okay. So from what we know in the movie is that Mothman sort of like heralds a disaster in some way. Yes. So Mothman showed up before Chernobyl, which showed up before uh, Tornado like a or something. Banshee-like figure in that Yeah, way. <laughs> kind of like that, yeah. And so like, that's what we get from it. He has some association with this other being, Indrid Cold, who is talking to Gordon on the phone or like in person and eventually Gordon dies because he's left out in the woods looking for him or talking to him or something. I don't know. Anyway, so like, what is the connection between these two things? Are they one and the same? The movie doesn't really outright state it's one and the same, but they kind of implies that it could be because we sort of get the impression that Indrid Cold can like impersonate other people physically mm-hmm. and like in terms of the voice, uh, that maybe Indrid Cold is the Mothman. So like, because uh, Alexander Lee also says like, they look like different things to different people. So for Deborah Messing and the horny teenagers, it looked like a Mothman for... Gordon, it looks like Richard Gere. But even for the horny teenagers, it looked somewhat different than well, but they Well, you just see a lot of bright light, and then they do that same thing that they do with Deborah Messing, where she gets in the car and we see, like, the red eyes and, like, the wings the, flying towards yeah, the camera. Yeah, that kind of triangular shape. Yeah, so you get that. So it looks like a mothy kind of thing. But the only, <sighs> like, thing that they explicitly refer to as the Mothman is a purely visual phenomena. Yes. Yeah, and so at the end of the day, I'm left not really clear as to what the relationship is between Mothman and Indrid Cold, what Mothman really is. Is Mothman Indrid Cold? Is Indrid right. Cold the, like a Metatron I don't think, for Mothman? I mean, I admit, like, again, I might do my own synthesis yeah. of all this information, but I don't think that there is such a thing. I don't think that there's like a Mothman in the way that people... In that there's like a physical Mothman. No, there's not yeah. a moth. There's not a dude that looks like a moth. Yeah. Like, it's just a thing people see that they can't... Like, I I, I posit it as like, uh, maybe somebody or like Solaris thing or like a rival, but it's just like a thing that people look at and don't know what to make of. And so they like what they... That is what they understand. They just assign symbols they know. So they're like, well, it looks like a dude with a moth wing, I guess. Mm-hmm. But what it really is, is just like some sort of indication of doom Mm -hmm. that they are unable to parse with their human senses. And everything else that goes along with it, like injured coal, is you can't take it for granted that because it's not a weird thing that's happening, that it's at all connected to this visual phenomenon. And I mean, that's, I suppose, sort of where the movie ends up with. You don't know that they're related, so we can't assume that there is like actually a connection between the two. Yeah. But they're there. It just feels so strange to me that if you want to make... I would think if you wanted to make that into a linear narrative, you have to answer these questions. I mean... Because if nothing is answered by the end of the movie... I don't think, I, I don't think you do. Yeah. My fix doesn't answer them, but... I, I, I don't know that you need to... None of them? I don't know Not that. a single. Yeah. I don't know that you need to either. I think you need... Like I said, I think you need to come to some resolution and what that yes. resolution is. But it doesn't have to be a resolution that resolves the issues of this strange phenomenon. I agree with that. It has to be like you coming to a point that makes everything that has come before matter in some way. That, everything yeah. that's come before makes you different in some way. That's what I meant. I'm yeah, sorry. I, yeah, you don't need to have answers, and I think that's fine. What I was going to I say... I think you should have answers. I'm going yeah. to go a step further. I don't think you should have answers because it's all fucking nonsense. Right, no, I, I, no, I mean, it's <laughs> a point. I, I don't think there is an answer that would work. Right? I, think, like, I don't want to use a corny aphorism, but I think that this movie is more about the journey than the destination. It absolutely is. I, I mean, yeah, and I think it's more about the, like, the weirdness that it's positing rather than like what it all means at the yeah. end of the day. I don't think it should be stated like, well, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, it would. <laughs> no, and I, because I actually think the answer at the end of the day would be less interesting than the mystery. Yeah, answers are always less Well, I think it just had to come. You want to walk this line. It had to come to a point. Something had to. Yeah, you want catharsis. That's what you want. Yeah. yeah. What my, my point is, if you want to walk this line in a movie of like, um, or is it? Or was it real? <laughs> then yeah. the most, the way to do that with the most finesse is to not answer the question yourself and to leave the audience able to either decide 
what it like. Yes, there was. With maybe equal evidence for yes. uh, two answers, several answers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the, what the best kind of creators do with that kind of scenario. Would you agree if I said that we had evidence for nearly nothing in this movie? <laughs> I mean, I you have evidence well, for right? anything because you can you come can to think, any conclusion. I think that there's, I don't think that you, that you don't have evidence. I think that there's nothing, like anything you say, you could find evidence for. Yeah. yeah. There isn't enough evidence. Yeah. To create any sort of like distinct level of <laughs> right, you come up with a compelling argument for anything, but none of the yeah. arguments will be. If very you're persuasive. a good bullshit artist, you could you could tell you could like say whatever you want about this movie, and you could find evidence for yeah. it. I wonder if if so much of this movie is just set up. I think that's the issue. Like it seems like no one knew how to conclude or resolve anything. They're just like let's just keep different weird things happening. And and this is, again, going back to, like, what the book presents to you as truth also. <laughs> but, like, I think if, if you were to just sort of ask me just out of nowhere, like, hey, so, like, what's the deal with Mothman? I'd probably be like, oh, it's it's a cryptid West Virginia... Urban red eyes, Right, like, guy with wings. Yeah. Like, some sort of big winged guy with red eyes. And I'd say, like, that's... That's all that it is. So, like, I think it was weird for me to, like, see this movie and read this book and hear, hear, like, there's all this other supernatural soup being dumped on top of it, too, where it's like, oh, no, no. It's not just people, like, hunting a cryptid or trying to figure out, like, what this weird thing is. There's aliens. And there's, like, psychic messages involved. And there are strange men that we can't explain. And so maybe just, in this movie, precognition. Yeah. So, it honestly, <laughs> just, like, it was, it's weird to me that, like, if you were to just say... There's a movie about the Mothman. I would expect it to just sort of be about this cryptid. And then it turns out, like, it's not really about that. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just that I think, for me at least, I went into this movie with a certain expectation as to what it would be about. Mm-hmm. And so the movie, like, grabbed me by the shoulder, spun me around 20 times, and was like, no, <laughs> that way. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I guess that's what it is now. I, I don't want to say that trying to bite off all the supernatural shit was a bad move for it. But it feels like it's very inexpertly handled. Yes. I, I don't care. Uh, frankly, I didn't really know what the Mothman, the cryptid was. I don't know think about the book. And I don't give a shit about either of those things. Yeah. I just take the movie... Uh, as it is. As it is. As, as what I got it without any, like, pre-existing assumptions of what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. I don't really know or care that much, like, how much they wanted to adapt versus just create. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, they just had the name or the idea of a Mothman. They were going to tell a story. I think there's plenty of good bones there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In what they did. And it just doesn't done well enough. Oh, I yeah, think... no. Yeah, I'm not saying, like, any of it's a bad choice. It was just, yeah. to me, a surprising choice. And it... I think the... I think, I think honest... I think you hit the nail on the head, Lee. I think a lot of the choices they make are actually very interesting. And I think there's good bones in here, for sure. Yeah, like, I, I feel like I could have been the scriptwriter. Like, I could have been someone that you were told... If you told me, like, you are being optioned to write... Uh, Adapt this book. called The Mothman Prophecies... Mm-hmm. And it's going to be adapted off of a book, and also, I guess, The Mothman is crypt in West Virginia. And I was like, me, I don't know any of those things. Uh-huh. This is what I would do. I would probably write something that ha- addresses a Mothman <laughs> at the most fringe level and just find a way to turn it into a story that I want to tell. Well, you would just, you would, your story would be about a Mothman, not necessarily <laughs> the Mothman. The Mothman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would drop the name Mothman once, and then I would say, listen, I, d- d- I adapted it. I don't know what you want. <laughs> it's in there. I mean, that's valid, honestly. honestly. You know? I-, I don't know. I think there's an interesting story to be told in just, like, in actuality, there's probably not a Mothman wandering through the woods in West Virginia. Like, I'm not going to say with 100% certainty the yeah. weird things don't exist. So I'm going to say it's probably a crane or an owl that startled someone who was seeing it from a distance, <laughs> yeah. saw something glowing, saw something huge with wings, and was like, holy shit. Someone saw it. Someone freaked the fuck out, as humans are prone to do. Well, honestly, maybe they fucking saw a large moth. 
Like those do exist. Okay. <laughs> not like, not like I, feel like, I feel like now we're drifting. No, no, no. Not maybe like, they saw Mothra. I no, don't no. know. Here's the thing. I don't think it's maybe like a, I don't think it's like a huge. We're like a, literally the a point. Huge the moth. point is there yeah. might be a mothman. There probably isn't. Yeah. But yeah, and that's what I'm saying. So like, I think the idea of just taking it at a very base level and writing a story about like what these people think they saw without actually saying this is what they saw. Yeah, you're off to a solid start there. Yeah. So going off of that, then, we talked about it a little bit, but the direction of this movie... Oh, my God. Perplexing. Uh, there's a lot to hold on to. It's a lot of directing. Yeah, there's a lot of directing. <laughs> level. Yeah. 10 out of 10. That's right. 11. Well, I what yeah, 11. Directing level. Mm, it goes dir- to 11. Yes. I think directing... No, we're saying, I like, directing on a, amount. Yeah. On, a, on an altimeter of, <laughs> yeah. like... Who has done the most directing? Yeah. Yeah. Mark Pellinger has done the most directing. Yeah. Directing per minute of this movie yes. is over the speed limit. <laughs> moments, <laughs> moments don't breathe really in this movie. Um, we have a lot of claustrophobic close-ups of mundane items. Uh, and I kept coming back to this and it's still lodged in my brain. I'm still rolling it around. But if Richard Gere and Laura Lanning weren't supposed to end up together, he does a lot of very intimate, like face close two shots. With I think them. It's, it's trying to do some of that. I think it is trying to hook up visually or, or, or thematically to like a Mulder and Scully thing. Mm. Um, that makes sense. I think it's trying to get you in that mindset of like two sleuths. Yeah, I don't, I don't think necessarily the movie is gearing you up to expect them to get together at the end. No, but. I don't think it is either. But then it makes some of its 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 choices uh, camera wise to be a little confusing because uh, visual language wise, if like their foreheads are like touching in some scenes and they're like whispering to each other like face to face and I'm like well, this... like, it, but everyone has everyone everyone in this movie is in a uncomfortable close up shot yeah. staring at a TV <laughs> or like saying some creepy shit under their breath even yeah. the fucking car mechanic who's like your car is fine yeah it's like how much money do I owe you I said it was fine yeah didn't you also feel like all of the townspeople just had like the weirdest eye contact always like well it's just that like everyone <laughs> in this town was directed to like be as be suspicious weird, yeah. and weird as you possibly can be very right? intense yeah. yeah no matter like who you are you could be walking from one store to another in the background glare at Richard Gere as he walks by <laughs> walk oddly make sure you have a strange gait hey, do it mumble in your breath a little just, just try it and I yeah. they hired uh, extras and like bit people from like the Tim and Eric crew of like For real. rural weirdos <laughs> just people with like weird faces I and, think on like, the first time around you also kind of referred to it, it felt like a little bit um, uh, down market Twin Peaks yeah I mean, like, like, it's like the West Virginia take on it's like yeah. another weird American town. Yeah. yeah. No, it is. Because everyone in this town is fucking weird as shit yeah. except for Laura Linney. I don't necessarily... I'm not hating the idea. I guess this director really wanted to like get creative with the camera work. It's overindulgent and it feels at many times quite amateurish. And I am a layman about film at best. But there's so many like quick swooping shots and overexposed lens work and I mean I at times it's excessive but he's also like very good at at, at, at good doing a mood like yes. there's yeah. a lot of good mood setting there are choices that are done like they're technically good well right like but the thematically one, why well the one thing to point out especially is the scene that is apparently shot through a mirror looking yeah. back at Richard Gere where you see a shot of Richard Gere looking into the mirror like initially he goes to look into a mirror and in the and corner of that mirror is a, is is a, a picture of Deborah Messing his yeah. dead wife <laughs> Um, and so then you see a shot that can only have been done if someone were like in this world, if someone were looking at him through the mirror. Behind a two-way mirror. Yeah, like you see, because you see the picture up in the corner and you're seeing it from the back. So you can see, like, you know, it's... It's of, faded. Yeah, it's hard to make out, but you can see colors and shapes. Yeah. And so it's just like, 
why is this shot here? It's just, it's there to disorient you, I guess. There's a lot of that. There's yeah. a lot of shots I think meant to disorient. And I don't hate it. I actually, I agree with you, Lee. I actually think this movie does a great job of like setting atmosphere and tone. My, my point about it is that it's just not, some of the tone setting is great, but then there are a lot of choices like that I, I don't really understand why. Like there was a moment where uh, the camera does a weird, it looks like it's shot through like water or something for a bit. Like that weird filter it happens. And I'm like, but why? Why then? Why now? Or, um, only that one woman with the crazy fake red hair. <laughs> She's <laughs> the only one who gets that insanely that overexposed flashback. Right. Well, also when the sexy teens are making out in the car, they have like when they're telling their flashback, it's like weird and red and like outlined. Yeah. Everyone's memory, I guess, has some sort of after effect done to it. Was that meant to be the like your perception alters what you whatever? I guess. I mean, for me, it's just that. Yeah, it's not that I don't find those shots and those techniques effective at sometimes. It's just that, like, by the end of the movie, it happens so much that it just, like, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. You're just kind of, like, it's lost any potency that it might have had at one point. Maybe if these things were used more judiciously, we would like yeah. it more. It's just, I mean, it's like with anything. It's just, like, overuse. And, yeah. you know, it, it, like, it just, it, it stops meaning anything at a certain point. So, like, by the end of the movie, you're just kind of like, okay. okay well, like, the, like, stuff, the, the stuff that does work is, like, telling everyone to be as weird as fucking possible. Yeah. Yeah. That does yeah. work in terms of setting a good atmosphere. And, oh, it does. Yeah. Because I was fully convinced pretty quickly, like, wow, this yeah. is a town. Of, like, and just, like, the ugh. the incredible frequent use of uncomfortable close-ups on people's faces. Yeah. And just the way that they're never... It's always, like, they're staring weirdly or they're talking under their breath. And they whisper a lot in this There's movie. a lot of whispering. There's a lot of, like, lampshading of lines, too. Like, there's a moment where, like, they're in the doctor's office and Gordon's getting his diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And he just sort of, like, walks... And you barely... It's, I mean, here, because it's subtitled, but, like, he's sort of, like... And he's being told, oh, the doctor says, like, you're fine. And he whispers to Richard Gere, like, he's wrong. Yeah. And barely. Right. And why he does... would not have registered that on right. the subtitle. And so, again, when... like, why, like, why is he thinking that? Like, how does that pay off in some way that we know that he thinks that? Like, it doesn't come up again. Similarly, yeah. would we have caught the mirror shot if you hadn't thought it was something else and asked us to go back? Yeah, we didn't notice it until I, I thought I saw a face on the, I thought it was, so I didn't realize it was the mirror because I just thought, like, it was a reverse shot of Richard Gere sitting somewhere in the right. hotel. Which makes sense. And I saw a face on the wall and I was like, what the fuck is that? It was like a brown, distinct, un- like, undistinct face. face. Yeah. Yeah. And it was because we're like, it's like looking at a picture printed out Backwards. on paper. Yeah. Behind, to the yeah. Light. yeah. So you're seeing it all like faded. Like, through yeah. The light. Yeah. And honestly, like, honestly, though, when you said that, I was kind of thinking like, boy, that would have been cool if they had done shit like that throughout the movie. Like, just yes! the like, eye shit that you don't notice until right. later. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if, if the idea is like, if this injured cold person is sort of watching him and knows what everywhere, he's doing, if the idea is just like in the background, or, like, or just in like a panning shot through his hotel as he's like walking from one end to the other, you just see like a guy sitting in the chair, like with his hands mm-hmm. folded, like looking and like nothing's ever addressed of it. Or Which, you, do you, how, how successfully, you, that's done in horror movies a lot, right? Yeah. The, yeah. It, in horror movies, it is so frequently done with a sting mm-hmm. of music that lets you because you know it is because they yeah. want you to know it's there. And it's so much more unsettling when they don't. No, but yeah. how successfully do you think that they, that you could have done something like that and have people genuinely not notice it until the second or third time around? I think what you do is you make the shot clear that you're a positive the audience has seen it at some point. Well, I mean, but I think it's just want, not addressed I, with music. I'm, I think I'm okay with the idea that you might not necessarily get it on the first shot. Maybe you subconsciously like how you sub or sort of like yeah. saw what you thought was a face maybe you subconsciously realize that something's amiss because like in the previous scene it was an empty chair and then you just happen to see really quickly there's someone standing there it's not like you yeah. know well, you, you know what of... alright I just realized um, I haven't seen it but that Midsummer I think does it mm-hmm. something... oh Wait, I think Midsommar. I have seen Midsummer. What are you talking about? There are like Midsommar. shots in Midsummer. <laughs> Midsummer. Uh, where I think that like it's a forest, but like if you squint and you pause, you can see a woman's face. Yeah. 
Um, so I, I think that maybe I'd have to like reference that for like, cause I, I'm curious to see how well, but I think that's what I'm, I want is yeah, like, I, I don't want don't any, notice that right, I don't want like any attention paid to it. Like, I don't want there to be a sting. The other yeah, thing yeah. I feel like you often see in scary movies is like where the person, well, like something in the background is out of focus, moving like completely still and all of a sudden like it moves. Like Lady in White does that shit a lot. Lady in Black. Lady in Black. Black. Yeah, Lady in Red. I'll never forget it. Lady in Red. <laughs> um, where it's like, where you just think that there's like nothing in the background. All of a sudden like the woman um, moves when she was just standing guys, there. we reference that movie quite often really in terms it. of just know. like really it's, really I'm well done horror fucking can't even handle that moment oh it's God. creepy just when he enters the house I'm just yeah. like Ugh! yeah I don't know big empty houses just get yeah. spooky yeah. but then okay but that's actually not a bad example for maybe Mothman Pro- I mean I know they can't but for Mothman Prophecies to follow just be- in terms of execution because Lady in Black I felt had a very yeah. pared down approach yeah and they really maximized the suspense yeah, but, but they still do. Eventually, yeah. the music is cracking. Right, and I'm stuff. saying like yeah. even less than that. Like, don't yeah. have the figure move. Don't have any sort of cue. Just have it be there, and then when he walks back, it's not there. Like yeah. he doesn't notice it. You, you yeah. as an audience might not notice the it. The focus never changes to it. There's right. just a thing there that wasn't there before. And if yeah. you were eagle-eyed, you might spot it, but otherwise, you wouldn't notice it. Through, through three yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I also can't help but wonder: Would we have noticed more? I can't remember what it was, but he goes to the ruins of some building and then just in the oh, archway, yeah. he oh, sees yeah. the orderly telling yeah. him. Well, yeah, because there is there is like a rub. There's like a crack in a wall and the crack in the wall Why kind of he... looks like the outline of a guy. Where did he go there? Why did he go there? That was a fa- it was, was a... it the chemical plant? No, that was no. Like a, a mine. Okay. Planet mine or something? Like or an like old one, or something? Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's the thing in the mythos that doesn't really come up in here that for whatever reason, Mothman is often cited around, like, industrial places for some reason. I don't know why that is. I assume that's what they're kind of doing there. But yeah, so he sees, like, this crumbling outline in a wall that kind of looks like the outline of a guy. And then he imagines the orderly who told him that his wife knew she was dying because she was drawing angels that gradually morph yeah. into the Mothman. That's a prime example of like a weird thing that happens that has no reasoning. Right. So like, what? Like, what? Again, why not? Why are you not seeing the Mothman? Also, why are like, you not seeing. Okay, he approaches the quarry and then he like imagines or remembers a moment, and the figure is like fitting into the like the archway of that doorway. I'm fine with that, but the fact that it's the orderly is what perplexes me. Like, why not just have it be of the wife? Yeah. She so, pops up enough anyway that that would make sense. Yeah, it's no. supposed to be like, it's it's done as if it's like a puzzle piece fitting together. Right, or like it's reminding him of something <laughs> somewhere, but it's reminding <laughs> him of the vague shape of this person. That's an Don't excellent way to put it. It is presented as if like, ooh, it's all coming it's together now. It's some yeah. of that part of the puzzle. That, yeah. No, it's just like a weird, just like, it's like spotting a cloud and saying it looks like a whale. Yeah. Yeah. All right, who wants to go first in terms of fixes? I can go first. All right, go for it. I think I put it pretty well about, like, how, it, you know, if you gave me this movie brief of, like, you have to write this movie, this is somewhat close to the thing that I would, am I right, if you told me I had to write a movie <laughs> based off of this book? Like, I, I don't know, because, like, I, had, I, I get to see the finished product. I don't know that I would have necessarily arrived at this, but, like, I don't want to write a movie about a cryptid. I, think, I don't like them. I don't like, I don't really want to write a movie about this weird nutcase who thinks aliens are ultra-dimensional beings. It doesn't whatever. speak to you. Um, but I fucking love stories about people struggling with grief and dealing with puzzles they can't really solve. So I really like the bones here, and I want to keep it... Uh, somewhat. So I'm keeping Richard Gere and I'm keeping Laura Linney, but they're both affected by, uh, they both have some sort of loss that is fairly recent. 
that whole two years thing was new on me. I didn't really fully put together. I don't know that two years is, is what I want to have. I will die on this hill. That was not put in the movie as a title it, card. I, I think it must have been, and we just didn't pay attention. Yeah. But like I that two years is maybe weird. <laughs> yeah. I, for me, it kind of I'm rethinking like how the movie happened now. Yeah. I'm sorry, but go ahead. But I like the idea that maybe what gets him there in the first place isn't, like, some random highway hypnosis. He winds up there. I don't know why he was driving in the first place. He was place. driving to, like, I don't know, somewhere to meet a governor. And then yeah. he just finds out that he's in the middle of the West road. Virginia. Like, yeah, miles away from where he's I from. think that it starts with a call from his ex-wife. Or his not, dead wife. His wife, yeah. His, his, his she ex-wife. is ex in a, in a sense. Yeah. In a way. She is no longer his wife. Yeah. <laughs> I think As we starts... refer to all dead wives. as the That's ex-wives! <laughs> Yeah, I think it starts with some sort of mysterious call where he thinks he hears... And it's, it's like nothing. It's like a sigh or it's like one word or something. Uh-huh. And it's... He traces the number to like a phone booth in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I think you can still even have the same creepy thing of like he doesn't... He, his car breaks down and he goes to Gordon's house and mm-hmm. Gordon's like, why is this man here again? And blah, blah, blah. You'd have the same... All of these same weird things happen. Keep Gordon having had these similar visions and keep Laura Linney as someone who had that dream... Uh, but all of the people that have had these sightings and had these things happen to them, if you were to investigate it, have had someone, like an aunt or a, a, a loved nephew, one. Yeah. Someone died yeah. recently. And the figure they see or the voice that they hear is of that person that died. And I, I, I think you can keep like the sort of visual phenomena of the Mothman because what I think I want to happen is I think the injured Cole is still a thing that happens in this movie. But I think that injured Cole is, is not... Not that he's really purporting himself in this to be the Mothman. He doesn't really... Purpose himself with anything, yeah. or, or address he just it. He yeah. some weird shit. Yeah, but what he does, he weirdly to me in this movie, he seemed like weirdly smug, and like know it all, which was weird yeah. to me. Yeah. So what I wanted to do with that, taunting is, almost at certain points. I think you keep Alexander Leak or whatever as like mm-hmm. the author, mm-hmm. who like he, he is one resource that Richard Gere goes to of like what is going on here, and, and Alexander Leak talks about the Mothman as something people see before things happen, and how like. They all, they, sometimes people get messages from people that they've, that have died recently. And like, it's always happened before some sort of big tragedy. And I have, I, I think you keep his character exactly the same of someone who like has sort of lost his life over it a little bit mm-hmm. and like been discredited as like a sort of legitimate scientist or author. And I think Indrid Cold is like sort of a, like a foil to that as like this mysterious dude that starts calling Richard Gere and says like, oh, it's going to happen. I know that chapstick's in your pocket, blah, 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 blah. You have to do X, Y, Z. And But like, he's sort of like saying that like, walking, he's sort of offering to like unlock this mm-hmm. ability, like you know you're getting these calls from your wife. Like, I know that you're going to talk to your wife again and she's going to tell you stuff and I could teach you how to how to use this more or whatever. But he's being vague and dropping hints in sort of like a weird, creepy, cult-like fashion of like, you have to like, if you follow my weird cryptic advice and do these things that eventually like, you will be enlightened or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this sort of escalates in a similar way to um, the movie where like more and more people have this thing. Uh, Laura Linney eventually uh, comes to the conclusion just after the chemical plant thing doesn't fails to happen of like, you know, this is pointless. You know, she's been strung along roughly by this point because they have a similar thing. They both have had people that have, that have been talking to them, but she decides like, this is really just like, it's led nowhere. It's leading to nothing. And like, what it's really doing is she, she has this realization first is like, it's keeping you like from moving on from mm-hmm. my grief. And she sort of is trying to convince her to make that same decision. And he can't really 
I mean, I guess he reluctantly does and moves back, but then he, you know, the wife calls again, mm-hmm. and Injured Cold will tells him like, if you do X Y Z, like if you go to this place at midnight or whatever, like then you'll it'll be unlocked or whatever. And I think what I want the conclusion of this to be is this idea that like Injured Cold is someone that is like gone a step too far, and Alexander Leake and Richard Gere is are people that like have chosen instead to like if you want to understand what's going on, you have to lose things. But yeah, you have to sort of go nuts mm-hmm. essentially. Like you have to lose other things. Like you can't move on from your grief you have to sort of like because what i like is the idea that like maybe these mysteries can be solved but like you're at the co- at what cost right mm-hmm. and so the idea that like Indrid cole has sort of lost key parts of his humanity over this um and maybe he is like a real person somewhere in the world that's, that's calling and maybe he does know things that other humans don't but like what has become of the person that was Indrid cold oh interesting it almost turns out to be a bit of like an Indrid cold story a little bit, but like I think this, the same thing happens at the end where he like is pulled back by uh, the prospect of like meeting Connie for Christmas or whatever, and this tragedy happens, and he, somehow you get that real like that realization of like I could have if I had done the thing that Injured Cold wanted me to do, I would have been able to stop the bridge tragedy. Mm. But what does that make me at that point? If yeah. I'm that like, like you, the doorway was open for him, but he chose not to go through it. May I go next? Yeah, go yeah. My fix is, um, at the beginning of the movie, Richard Gere and Deborah Messinger, they've like settled on a house that they were about to fuck in while the realtor was literally right there. I cannot get over that. So in my mind, that house was in West Virginia. They were looking to move out of Georgetown. Maybe this idea of like, we're going to go like live a simpler life or whatever. She still gets into the car crash, crazy tumor, dies. But I want that to happen after they've moved into the house. So there could have been like the sense of like, we now inhabit this space. And I want Laura Lenny to be Deborah Messing's sister, who is also going through her own grief process once Deborah Messing is dead, and is much more of a scully to Richard Gere's Mulder in terms of like, she's looking at this a lot more sensibly. I think to a certain extent, she is kind of pulled into the mystery, but she more or less throughout the story is going to continue to be a voice of reason. The, the thing I really wanted to punch in on was the idea of Richard Gere's character is so overcome with grief that he is fixating on this urban legend of the Mothman and of these like reported stories that he starts to kind of chase down himself as like an amateur journalist. And he starts kind of building this mythos around uh, why his wife died. And I think where I want it to be is, um, yes, I mean, like maybe he's like seen some weird shit. Maybe he hasn't. Maybe it could be explained. Maybe it couldn't be. But at the end of the day, he is using the Mothman myth and its possible connection to his wife's death as a way of not having to move on, of of being able to keep his wife in his mind. And I want the house to kind of be emblematic of that, of like he leaves her things there. Maybe she maybe she drew not like crazy, wacky <laughs> demons, a demon angel <laughs> shit. But you know what I mean? Yeah. I want him to like have like maintained all of her effects around the house and that Laura Linney is maybe a little creeped up by that. So it is, a, I think, more of a story about him processing his grief and moving past that. But I think you can pull in some really interesting supernatural things. I want to keep a lot of I want to keep the idea of like the Mothman creates disaster because in my mind, Richard Gere's character finds that to be a very welcoming idea because then it explains why his wife was dead in a very tidy, neat, brand order kind of way. When I think where I'd like them to arrive at the end of the movie is this shit will sometimes happen. And there's not going to be a crazy, supernatural, magical, satisfying reason for why it happened. But I want him to kind of take a very long, lurid detour into that thinking in his grief process. 
yes, the bridge is going to collapse and I want him to kind of freak out about the chemical plant and all that, but I want that to be more of like the character climax of realizing sometimes tragedies just happen. It doesn't have to be a part of this crazy magical banshee experience. So I think the way you kind of pull in that supernatural shit is to try to like dramatize or do the flashbacks with the other people kind of recounting their Mothman experiences. And I want to keep the idea that each of them had remarkably different ones because I really want to punch through this idea that these are people who have lost something or experienced some kind of trauma and then have reached out to this urban legend to make sense of it all. Which I, I, I find personally to be an interesting idea of people seeking magical thinking to make sense of something they are having trouble making sense of. I think the core difference is that there probably is some real shit going on in mine. Like, I'm saying probably there's some real psychic shit happening, but it's a choice of whether you want to go not, like, what right. are you, like, what are you gonna, like, throw away the rest of your life in, in pursuit of this mystery? Or are you just gonna decide that you can't know everything? So I have an element of that also, actually. <laughs> uh, I guess we can see what drew us to this yeah. story. So- <laughs> In mine, uh, I want this to be a period piece set during 1967, culminating with the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which is the real bridge that collapsed in uh, over the Ohio River. Because if you're going to pull from real events, like you might as well just like set it in that time period anyway. I think there's also something to be done with this fear of seeing a strange, inexplicable foreign presence during the time of the Vietnam War, uh, where it's just sort of like, this is happening. Fascinating! And also, like how I said, how in the books, the men in black are described as sort of like, not white. Well, no, not white. Yeah. And so just the also idea that like maybe you're projecting your image like your subconscious fear like what's happening over there in terms of like what you're conjuring. Oh, you that's know, an here. interesting idea. Yeah. So like you know so maybe like that's what Mothman kind of like you know is there a logical explanation and maybe this is all coming from like you trying to make sense of the fact that you like were dragged into a pointless war. I don't know. You've got that. So what I also want this to be is more of an ensemble movie focusing mostly on the residents of Point Pleasant and how this affects them. So the main character is going to be a woman who's loosely based on a writer for a local paper who is in the book. Uh, She's like this very no-nonsense smart woman but I don't want her to be like a scully type per se. What I want her to be is sort of uh, someone who is open to the idea of something supernatural like as she's you know, presented with enough compelling arguments and she just doesn't want to rule out any possibility no matter how ridiculous. So at a certain point, you're just like, maybe we should be talking to someone else about this. I don't know. So from her, you also get the other residents of Point Pleasant, like sexy teens who are necking the car <laughs> when they caught a glimpse of the Mothman. Uh, a Gordon type who seems to be in direct contact with some sort of ultra-terrestrial presence called Indrid Cold. And just ordinary townspeople of varying credibility who all have these weird stories of what they think they've seen. And they're like all kind of a little different, but they're kind of a little similar. Like they're a big similarities like oh it had big red eyes and some people were like oh no it was six feet tall and could fly straight up like a helicopter other people are like oh it was running through the woods you could have connective tissue or it could just be a bunch of people seeing things that they're trying to explain to the best of their abilities injured cold whom we never see directly seems to have some understanding of like what this mothman thing is that people claim to see but is either unwilling or unable to effectively communicate what he believes it to be i think injured cold is also someone who you won't really ever clearly see in this version like he's going to be talking to the gordon type and maybe it's some point he would like talk to the main characters but you wouldn't ever really see him I think because it's more interesting that way. Uh, there's also going to be a Richard Gere slash author insert type character who's a paranormal scholar but to make him more likable and interesting he's going to be less of like a woe is me why was I burdened with the knowledge that like of, of the truth that no one else can understand <laughs> and more of like this skeptical bitter sarcastic guy where he's kind of like interested in paranormal phenomenon mm. and he'd really like it to be true but he's like just thinks that he's never going to find any evidence to prove it so it's like 
he'll, you know, he'll give it his all, but he knows at the back of his head at the end of the day that, like, this is bullshit and nothing's going to actually come of mm. it. He doesn't have any sort of pseudo-romantic tension with the journalist woman character, because I don't care about that. And likewise, we won't have Deborah Messing messing things up by being <laughs> dead. Uh, Deborah messing, indeed. Deborah messing yes. it up! Basically, the story should start fairly mundane, then just slowly ratchet up until the creepiness and paranoia becomes oppressive and culminates at the end after one year with the bridge collapsing. Some of the people we meet are going to die in it, like the journalist and the paranormal expert won't, and they both go their separate ways at the end. And the paranormal expert basically renounces everything he's done to that point at the end. He, like, he so desperately wanted there to be evidence of something that he didn't stop to rationally think about how it might affect others, or you know how it's just going to end with him asking questions on top of questions and never getting an answer that he wants. And the journalist, on the other hand, says that she wants to learn more to understand whatever happened or to try and stop it from happening again. And while the expert says, like, you know, you shouldn't do this, don't become obsessed with this, I think this is a bad idea, he leaves his research with her as a guide and the two part with an understanding of the connection and friendship they formed as, like, this idea that you have something positive and human to hold on to and the entire world seems, like, chaotic and tragic, that, like, you have a connection mm-hmm. with someone else. I was going to say, is that a little bit of the current real world? I mean, there is the always that, sure. But, yeah. And that's what I got. Ah, I like it. Yeah. It's interesting that we all, we all did kind of seek out some similar angles. Yeah, they're like, I think they're all different enough. They're all pretty different, like, takes, like, our conclusions are, like, different enough in flavor that they're they're substantially different messages. I like that Lee's kind of kept the supernatural, but uh, took a different approach to it. And I think raised some really interesting philosophical questions. Yeah. Mine was more an emotional journey of grief and moving past it. And Brendan went into, like, kind of awesome political period allegory. So, I mean, because I think the thing that we have in common here is, like, probably the thing that we like the most about this movie, and that this movie poses a lot of interesting questions, and then at the end we never get those answers. I think that's very clear, Mm. and that's why we all sort of ended up incorporating a bit of that into our fixes, because, like, I think that's a compelling story to be told. (laughs) I kind of like the idea that you could tell a story where at the end someone has to be like, there's no answer. You'll never know the answer, and that's okay. what do you learn when you learn nothing? Right, exactly. So, like, yeah, what conclusion do you come to when you realize that you can never Things. But I, I love that question. One of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to fantasy or sci-fi stories is when uh, they pause the narrative to explain to you the rules of something that's going on. And I find that to be like t- totally antithetical to like a smooth, organic feeling plot. Yeah. And I feel if you're skilled, all of that comes in through inference. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe everyone has their own takeaway. I think in its best form, that's what this movie was going for. And I think that's what we were going for in our fixes in yeah. terms of like... A lot of this could be whatever you believe it is. Yeah. So would you guys recommend it? No. I actually think I would. I think I might too. <laughs> I mean, I, I say recommend it knowing that, like, it's not a good movie. <laughs> You're not going to be happy at the end with what you've sat but through. But there is good stuff in it. Yeah. There's some intriguing concepts put forth. And they're oftentimes told amateurishly, but sometimes they're effective and spooky. I and think you can get the same thing. From this movie and better movies. Oh, no, oh yeah. I mean, you could just watch The X-Files, right? But I, would, like, well, but I, would, I, don't, I think you could get the same thing from non-supernatural. I think um, I am blanking on the name. Mm-hmm. The one with Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. about the serial killer. Zodiac. 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 Yeah. I think you get Zodiac. I think Zodiac gives That's you... That's right, because I mean, yeah, the central crux of Zodiac is like, we don't know. We don't know. Like, and like, <laughs> somebody spent most of their life looking for them. And right. Like, what, you but know, what do you learn when you learn nothing? Yeah. yeah like, what, what does obsession do to you? Some people, yeah, Robert Downey Jr. was like, fuck it, I don't care anymore. And Jake Gyllenhaal was like... 
20 years later, like... Destroying himself over yeah, yeah. Like, losing him. his, like, on his second marriage. Like, yeah. Part, yeah. Um, I think there is a weirdness to this movie that I actually really appreciate, and there are some instincts and choices made that I was really taken with, to be honest. I truly think there's a lot of good things in this movie. I just think they're not handled very well. The pieces never quite get joined together in a way that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I, I just think, for my money, if you want pieces of anything in this movie, you can get movies that do all of those things better. Maybe mm-hmm. not in one movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can get better mysteries. You can get better creepy supernatural stuff. I will say, though, in terms of, like, a movie that is not great, but I know that was... That's a good noise. Titusaur just showed up. It's my seal with a cold bark. I think the thing that draws me in about this movie and makes it really stick in my brain is the fact that I think there is a ton of potential in here that is not realized. Man, there's a, this is a rare day when I'm the one that says no, and we're both it. like, yeah, yeah, sure, go for it. It's a rare day when I'm the, one, I'm the single no of, yeah. like, would you recommend this? <laughs> yeah, they recommend for me. Yeah. Yeah, there are worse ways you can spend your time. I wouldn't go in there thinking you're you're in for the experience of a lifetime, but you're going to see some interesting things. Yeah. I also just think if you just want to look at a, a guy investigate stuff for better eyes, you could find better guys than Richard Gere to look at. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah, Richard Gere is just like... His nose is bulbous. I also... <laughs> It's a bulbous nose. Um, I also, I, I don't know. I, I know we were going to talk about that. actors. I don't think Richard Gere is like a great actor. Like he's a fine he's actor, fine. you know. But like, I don't think that he's super compelling. I'll never yeah. forget the way he throws that phone in that one scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just has to get that phone away from him. Immediately. Uh, yeah. It can no longer be anywhere close to him. Uh, and when Laura Linney goes into that jewelry shop that wouldn't sell her any jewelry earlier, and she's like, remember when you wouldn't serve me? Big mistake. Huge <laughs> mistake. Uh, anyway anyway thank you guys for listening to another episode of why do we watch this as always you can find us online at www.droppack.com or you can like us on facebook at facebook.com slash why watch podcast or you can write a review on apple podcast you can also download us there i think switch from wherever i don't know anyways go there if you want to listen to the podcast and give us five stars that's right count of five five I'm stars only five. it's a quarantine you owe us this. five stars for the five stars of the mothman prophecies that's right laura Liddy, richard gear deborah messing Mothman. <laughs> and, and the coach from Remember the Titans. Well, and Leek. Yeah, it's Alan yeah. Bates. That's right, Alan Bates. Wait, should we buy it out like Injured Cold? I can't do that. <laughs> 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 <laughs>